Hi, my name is Peter Kaiser. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Retinal Physician Magazine, and welcome to this edition of the Retinal Physician Podcast. I'm joined today by truly one of my dearest friends, Dr. Judy Kim. She is a professor of ophthalmology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Welcome, Judy, to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for the invitation. I'm excited to be with you. You know, you're really involved in the DRCR, and there's been some recent results from the DRCR uh, with all these double letters. I mean, it's, it's getting hard to keep track of, of all the different protocols, which is amazing. Um, so maybe for our listeners, you could just kind of highlight some of the key findings from some of the recent protocols. Yes, the DRCR Retina Network uh, does not have that much uh, imagination to name all these protocols, but then we have done over two dozen um, clinical trials. So uh, this is a nice, uh, efficient way of naming our trials. Um, protocol V, uh, the way I remember, is uh, very good vision. Because as you know, most of our clinical trials uh, included uh, eyes with 2032 or worse visual acuity. Um, so we did not have any um, clinical trial data to guide us with 2020 or 2025 visual acuity uh, patients. And um, the study found um, V for very good visual acuity um, uh, with centered involved diabetic macular edema on OCT. Uh, they found that um, you can wait until uh, vision uh, drops uh, with that uh, um, compromise in final visual acuity uh, compared to starting a, a, a fluorescent earlier on uh, or um, even laser early on. So uh, that gives us some um, reassurance that we can continue to observe patients. Uh, however, um, many of them did require uh, uh, getting a, a fluorescent injection because their uh, DME did get worse. Um, so in um, the uh, first uh, year, about 28% uh, of the observation group um, ended up requiring a fluorescent and 13% um, of the uh, um, um, the laser group required um, um, a fluorescent. So, um, it behooves us that we should continue to monitor these patients uh, closely uh, in order to um, um, not miss the good timing, uh, best timing to treat them. And recently, there was a sub-analysis of um, um, the uh, fellow eye. They looked at uh, which patients were more likely to get these uh, uh, additional anti-VEGF injection um, during the follow-up, and they found those who had uh, increased uh, OCT thickness at baseline, uh, more severe retinopathy um, in the study eye, and uh, the uh, fellow eyes already receiving diabetic macular edema treatment. So if you have those patients, even with a good visual acuity, 2020 and 2025, if, um, you may want to follow them either closely or if their hemoglobin A1C is not in good control, um, I think it's okay to start treating them early rather than waiting for their visual acuity to drop and start treating. So that was my take point that, you know, we don't have to start right away, but uh, in certain patients, um, certain type of patients, we may want to start treatment early still. I think that's a key point because many people you know, heard sort of the elevator pitch 
of protocol V and, and, and basically they're saying, well, you don't have to treat anybody with good vision, you know, really no matter what. And, and what you just highlighted is something that that's really important, which is, you know, you have to take the patient who's sitting in front of you, right? If the patient doesn't even know they have diabetes, they're probably not the best patient to not treat because they may never come back. Uh, or if they have a lot of ischemia or if their other eye did poorly. So you really, you know, you, you take the clinical trial result, but but you have to really apply it to that patient who's sitting in front of you. So I really like how you sort of covered it. Now, there was, a, there was another protocol, protocol AA. What, what was that one all about? So protocol AA was looking at ultra-wide field um, uh, photographs uh, using Optos and following them annually for four years to see whether eyes that had peripheral lesions outside of the usual um, central field that we take pictures of uh, whether having these peripheral lesions um, um, uh, meant they are more likely to develop uh, neovascularization or diabetic macular edema or other you know, worse outcome or loss of vision, et cetera. And uh, what the study found was that um, um, it did not, uh, based on color bundle photographs, uh, but um, the, on fluorescent angiogram, the eyes that had uh, more uh, peripheral lesions uh, had more uh, peripheral ischemia. And I think um, um, that um, may not be really uh, surprising, but what it means is that uh, perhaps there is a role for ultra wide field fluorescent angiogram that we don't always use, but uh, it may me uh, want to use it more um, as we follow our patients sooner, uh, even in moderate MPDR um, and definitely uh, in severe MPDR to see if uh, uh, these patients uh, actually uh, have uh, treatable disease or uh, follow them more closely for developing treatable disease. Yeah, I would agree. You know, I think you, when you when you look at wide field fluorescine, what you see in a periphery, and 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 Charlie Wyckoff and Dave Brown did a study also, kind of looking at this. Um, the periphery shows so much in, in really that wide field fluorescein is a, is a godsend. Now, obviously we could have done sweeps in the past. And if you don't have a wide field fluorescein, you can do sweeps, but I find it so vital in these severe diabetics, just as they're about to convert over really to see, you know, how soon do I need to see the patients back? Am I missing some little twigs of NV out, out in the periphery? Um, it, it, it's fascinating what you can see on wide field fluorescein. Are you having any trouble uh, in Wisconsin with the with fluorescein? We're, we're, we're having trouble right now getting fluorescein. What are you guys doing about that? Yeah, we, we did have uh, trouble. So uh, for a short period of time, we weren't doing a, a fluorescein angiogram at all. Uh, and if I really wanted, I, uh, we were getting OCT angiography instead and also sweeping to get as far out as possible because we don't have the uh, wide field uh, OCT and geography, but uh, that was our poor man's version of uh, doing it, which you know tells us that some, sometimes um, if we really wanted to, we have this non-invasive method, OCT and geography uh, that we can use, uh, especially looking at the capillary dropout near the center where uh, the visual acuity is determined. Yeah, I agree. It, it, it's it's unfortunate that that not everybody has 
OCT angiography, especially wide field OCT angiography, because I really think it, it could replace it. At Cole, you know, we, we've resorted to to basically rationing fluorescein, you know, given half dose and, and treating two patients with half the dose. And, and the fluorescein's come out pretty good, but but this is a this is a big problem nationwide that this shortage. What are some of the other protocols? The another uh, uh, two-letter, double-letter uh, one that came out is protocol AE, um, photobiomodulation for um, sensor-involved diabetic macular edema with good vision. So um, similar patient population as protocol V, if we uh, can treat early with non-invasive um, and not very expensive treatment that can be done at home, whether uh, that has a role um, in uh, management of our patients. And the nice thing about that uh, uh, protocol was uh, if uh, it were found to be uh, beneficial, uh, then we can um, um, roll it out um, around the world even, uh, where the, uh, it's not as expensive as anti-VEGF agents. And also um, the patients could do it at home. So may minimize the number of visits coming to the clinic, et cetera. So it had a lot of potential. Um, so photobiomodulation therapy was performed for, uh, for four months. Uh, and uh, we compared with the uh, placebo uh, sham group. Uh, um, and the uh, fun thing about that protocol, uh, which I headed as a national study chair, we designed the um, photobiomodulation uh, device that looks like an eye patch uh, that patients could wear at home. Um, and uh, it also had um, a monitor to make sure that they were using it because whenever you have a home uh, device, you don't know whether they're using it or not. So the compliance monitoring uh, was important. So um, the company was able to incorporate that in, into it. So uh, it was fun to um, device a, uh, design a device that we can use. Uh, but the bottom line is that the, at the end of the day, the finding was that there was no difference between the uh, um, uh, treatment group and the uh, uh, sham group. So, um, and it was a phase two trial, um, trying to see whether we can roll out to a bigger phase three trial if we saw any benefit, but we didn't see any um, improvement in the OCT thickness, which was the primary outcome data. Um, so uh, we're not gonna be using it, but it's sort of interesting because uh, there is a photobiomodulation therapy uh, that uh, showed positive results in AMD uh, in regressing Drusen and even got a little bit of vision improvement in that uh, uh, therapy. Um, the thing is that the photobiomodulation, as I um, ended up studying a lot of it, uh, it's very complex. Uh, there's lots of data in the literature um, with the animal models and in vivo, uh, in vitro models that showed benefit. Uh, but in order to bring that data, uh, knowledge into human beings, we had to dis discuss you know, what wavelengths is best how long to, uh, uh, to deliver, how often to deliver, and uh, how often not to deliver. You know, all these uh, biological stuff that uh, um, we don't think about uh, came into play. And the other uh, commercial device um, has three wavelengths, whereas uh, we did one wavelength. And that one is, uh, uh, was positive for AMD, 
whereas we study DME. So perhaps disease difference may come into play as well as different wavelengths, as well as well as um, we had our patients use it twice a day, morning and um, evening. Um, but perhaps that was too much with these um, uh, uh, circadian rhythm and cycles. Um, 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 maybe we needed some time to uh, have the eye rest, the mitochondria to rest a little bit. Um, um, so the other one does it you know, three times a week, but the patients have to go into the clinic, whereas ours was home um, therapy. So there, you know, there are a lot of differences, uh, but it uh, gives us um, um, some hope that we can devise uh, possible uh, home therapy uh, treatments that, that we can do in the future. Yeah, I mean, biomyelogation is really interesting, and, and I look forward to seeing the results in, in the AMD, in the dry AMD patients. And it was unfortunate that the DRCR study didn't show it in DME. But as you said, you know, maybe maybe it needs to be just tweaked a little bit and the protocol needs to be uh, a little different. So the jury's not yet out uh, on photobiomodulation. Well, Judy, it's been wonderful speaking with you as always. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in a, in a few weeks in New York City at, at the ASRS meeting. Uh, but to our listeners, thank you for uh, joining Judy Kim and I today on the Retinal Physician Podcast. And I look forward to uh, talking with you in the future. Thank you, Peter. It was a pleasure.